Good morning. Good morning. Okay, up there. That's what's up. Good morning. Good morning. It's a joy to be with you all. Uh, I have quite the privilege uh, to have been asked and invited to open God's word uh, to you all this morning. This is the words of eternal life, and it is my joy, it is my absolute joy to get to serve you this morning. It is not going to be an hour and a half, I hope. Uh, let's pray and ask for God's help. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Hallowed here this morning. Would you use your word, Lord, that we might esteem you as we ought, trust you as we should. Oh, sanctify us in the truth. Your word is true. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen? Amen. All right. Just so y'all know, I'm loud. I'm very loud. So feel free to be loud, too. Okay. Well, we're going to get into Psalm 131. If you have a copy of God's Word, please do open up there. I don't know if you remember medicine commercials or commercials, period. Everybody, Apple TVs now. I was watching TV with our kids once, and we were in a hotel, and commercials came on. And we're like, what is this? Uh, <laughs> Um, but you know the, com the commercials where they, they seek to advertise something they have that can help you by giving words to what you're struggling with. Do you suffer from debilitating headaches or chronic migraines? And do regular over-the-counter medicines bring no relief? Try Orthodox today, guaranteed to get you through the day pain-free. And if that's you, you get your phone <laughs> or you get online, Amazon, right? And you, <laughs> you see if it's hitting for what it says it does. Does this really work? Well, saints, uh, it's, it's the, the Bible offers us the best me medicine, the best remedy for all of our problems. Is life too much for you? Are you regularly tempted with anxiety and stress? Do you find yourself losing sleep because you're fretting? Do the problems of the world seem completely overwhelming to you? Do you feel helpless to change anything in your life at all? Are trials a consistent source of confusion? Or perhaps there's a particular providence of God in your life right now that is perplexing you to discouragement. Well, Saint, try Psalm 131. Try hoping in the Lord. It's guaranteed to give you rest forever. Psalm 131, Saints, that's where we're going to be. I mean, it's quite profound for us to be able to sing what we just sang and actually mean it. You can sing it, you can even sound good singing it and not mean it, but it's a profound, miraculous thing to be able to sing what we just sang and mean it, that whatever my lot, that when Satan is buffeting, which we don't talk like, but when he's coming with his blows, 
when the storm's rising, when sorrows roll on you like crashing waves, whatever my lot, it's well with my soul. But when you're in a real and right relationship with God, that's exactly what you say, and that's exactly what you mean. Oh, let's read the psalm, Psalm 131. This, I promise you, is the best part of the sermon. Psalm 131, a song of ascents of David. Oh, Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me, but I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. Oh, Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth evermore. Dear saints, this is God's word. We are thankful for it. What we've sang about, we've talked about the cross. The cross is what brings us life. What Jesus did for us when we were in a truly helpless state, right? Christ has regarded my helpless estate, right? When we were dead in our trespasses and sins, God had love for us, showed mercy to us, and made us alive together with Christ. The cross is the shape of life for the path of a pilgrim. This psalm, with that then, gives us the posture of a pilgrim on that path. This psalm gives us the posture of one being content. Uh, let us go to the soul chiropractor this morning. Let's get our posture as pilgrims realigned so that we might enjoy that blessed calm and soul quietness of closeness with the Lord so that as we go home today, we can honestly, before the Lord, say and mean, it is well with my soul. Uh, so to serve us on our pilgrimage this morning, we're looking at Psalm 131. And again, it gives us this posture we're intended to have as pilgrims. We're not home yet, which... If you think about heaven, when you talk about heaven, when you read what God says about heaven, home is a glorious place, a perfect place. We get to be with the one we love. We get to be rid of all death. We get to be rid of all mourning, all sickness, everything that brings the tears. His own hand will wipe away, will be in the land where there is no sin. We get to dwell in Emmanuel's land, and God himself will dwell with us. And that's where we're headed, but that's not where we're at. Which is why the Bible talks about us now as sojourners, pilgrims. We're people who are headed to a glorious place. And there's an appropriate posture to have as we go. And this psalm makes it plain. He, he calls us to have the posture of those who trust the Lord, to hope in the Lord. And it gives us help, this psalm does, on how it ought to look. Uh, one commentator, his name is Alec Motyer, uh, you can look him up. He has a little devotional on the Psalms that he wrote. He's a beast with the Hebrew. I am not. 
but he's faithful with it. He can, and he gives you some really uh, helpful translations and devotions to serve in your time. Here's a little commentary. It's, it's like 30 bucks. It'll be a, a blessing to you, particularly in understanding the, the Psalter. Um, but he labeled this psalm utter contentment, utter contentment. And as I read it, we can see why, right? Utter contentment. No preoccupation with things we can't understand and a restfulness with the Lord. Uh, and what a help that would be to us on a wearisome pilgrimage if we can say as we go about, we got utter contentment. Uh, here we have a short psalm that I hope adds to you a big blessing. Uh, the inscription of this psalm is a song of ascent and that it's written by David. And it's important to, to note uh, because God saw fit for us to know that. Uh, the songs of ascent are found in the psalm book from Psalm 120 to Psalm 134. And while it's slightly unknown what the in exact inscription means, this song of ascent, it's generally held to by commentators that these were pilgrim songs. These are songs that the people of God would sing as they go up to Jerusalem to worship the Lord, uh, to partake in the feast that God commanded. Israel was commanded to gather up in Jerusalem, and Jerusalem was the high place of God. And so no matter where you were coming from, you always went up to Jerusalem. Even if you went south, you were going up to Jerusalem. And God called his people to gather to him several times a year. A couple references is Exodus 23, 14 through 17. Another one is Deuteronomy 16, 16. Again, there the Lord's commanding that all their, their males, and that was kind of a summary headship language of all the peoples, were to appear before the Lord uh, three times a year. Uh, they would come to feasts to worship the Lord. This is what the Lord Jesus was doing in Luke chapter 2. Uh, you remember his family, they came to worship, they left, Jesus stayed in the temple, and he was rocking all the older saints with his insight and his questions about the word. Luke 2, 41 through 42 says, now that his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of Passover, and when he was 12 years old, they went up, right, according to the custom. And so there, there's these times where the saints would gather, go up to Jerusalem, and these songs are probably the songs they would sing along the journey. These would be the songs the saints would sing as they went up. Again, ascent, as they went up, songs of ascent, as they were going to Jerusalem. Well, another thing this, this brother of ours, Alec Matyer, suggests in these psalms is that for the songs of ascent, they're best taken in triads. So Psalm 120, 121, and 122 go together. That would mean here, Psalm 129, 130, and 131 go together. And I just want to be clear, that is not inspired instruction. God did not say that in the Bible, but it can be a helpful exercise to see why some of the songs are positioned where they are. It's helpful to see the tug of war between them throughout the scriptures and notice the saints wrestling with various troubles and seeking to trust the Lord in them all. We see the saints looking to the Lord surrounded by troubles from without, like in Psalm 129. We see the saints looking to the Lord weighted by troubles within themselves, like you see in Psalm 130. Whether it's deliverance from enemies or deliverance from their own sins, the solution is still the same. It's to wait, it's to hope, and to trust in the Lord. And that's what we find in Psalm 131. Whereas pilgrims, we are all perpetually wearied by the journey. We are all constantly weighted down with our sins. 
In this psalm, we find the recipe for regular rest. This psalm provides us with a pattern for imitation so that we might experience and know the calm of contentment as sojourners and pilgrims in this world. This psalm helps to acquaint us with a more meaningful and deep and unending ability to keep singing whatever my lot. It's easy to say when you're not in some, some rugged stuff, but if you can say it when you're in the valleys, that's when you've learned the secret. That was Paul's point in Philippians 4. Listen, I learned it. I know how to have. I know how to not to have. I know how to, to be in lack. I know how to be in abundance. I learned it because I always have him. Dear saints, the psalm teaches us how to hope in the Lord, and we got to be taught by the Lord in everything. Psalm 131, two points. Point number one, humble yourself. Point number one, humble yourself. That's the recipe to rest. That's the only way to get in the kingdom, Jesus said. You got to be humble. The proud God opposes, but the humble he gives grace to. The recipe for rest, saints, the commitment for contentment. Humble yourself. Humble yourself. Humble yourself. Saints, the key to contentment is humility. It's not the absence of trials that brings quiet to our souls. It's not the absence of hardship that brings calm to our spirits. A huge hindrance to our experience of God's peace is our own lack of humility. Earlier, uh, she was reading the text, and Paul says, rejoice. Again, I say, rejoice. John Newton wrote, he said it again just to cut you off as you went to interrupt him on saying why you couldn't. <laughs> the Lord is at hand. As 1 Peter 5, 6 has it, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that at the proper time he may exalt you. Humility, dear saints, is a prerequisite to experiencing the blessed peace of God. This is why the psalmist begins, interestingly here, by humbling himself. Look at verse 1. Oh, Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. Dear saint, much in your life is above your pay grade. Most of your life is above your pay grade. And the question is, do you know that? Do you say that? They were singing this. <laughs> this is all above our pay grade. Like, <laughs> it's interesting here. I mean, that's when we get frustrated with God, when we act like we get what he's doing. When we start making recommendations and revisions and upset he doesn't accept them. And we forgot <laughs> this is above our pay grade. It's interesting to hear David depict, this is King David. This is the one who was leading God's kingdom. And he starts by saying, listen, no bunch of this is above my pay grade. David depicts humility. He does so in contrast to the expressions of pride he lists. Pride here in this 
psalm is described as having a preoccupation with desiring great things, having great aims, and exercising ourselves to great ends. But the humble perspective is really aimed at having great obedience. I like how another commentator put it. He says, the proud person looks, compares, and competes, but is never content. The proud person, right, focuses on things too great and too marvelous for them. They're not too great and too marvelous for God. They're too great and too marvelous for us. They insist on understanding and and knowing those kinds of things, those God things. I wonder if when you went to share the gospel with someone who doesn't know the Lord, if you ever received this kind of objection where the person's rejecting the Lord and they're doing so precisely because they don't understand his ways and his thoughts and they assume that they should be able to and that their ideas are better. Faith is not contingent on us figuring anything out. Faith is trusting that the Lord already has. We see the psalmist, King David, doing something very different than the proud. He humbles himself. Listen, that is the only way to do what I read another commentator said was the point of this verse. Namely, learning to live with unanswerable questions. Friends, that's the Christian life. Learning to live with unanswerable questions. Learning to live at peace, we would add with unanswerable questions. Learning to live with peace and joy, we might tack on with unanswerable questions. Some people try to act like there's not unanswerable questions, and that don't help nobody. It makes it seem as if God is afraid of people struggling with big things, which he's not. He, in his providence, placed it there for them to struggle, that they might learn humility. But life is filled with unanswerable questions. We could ask why an unlimited amount of times about any number of circumstances we find ourselves in. Sorrows and sicknesses, sudden or painful losses, hardships, hindrances. Beloved, life is filled with unanswerable questions and the proud demand answers. I'm going to worship you once you answer me. You need to answer me. And it's not just answer me, it's answer me in a way I'm satisfied with. They demand answers and they presume upon their ability to fathom and comprehend the mind of God. But faith says, oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How inscrutable are his ways and unsearchable are his judgments for who has known the mind of the Lord and who has been his counselor, who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid from him and through him and to him are all things. To him is the glory forever. Amen. The proud exalt themselves to being like God in their comprehension. This is how the devil tempted Adam and Eve. He just doesn't want you to get stuff like he gets stuff. Their hearts are lifted up in pride. Their eyes are raised too high for their position. You know, back in the day, you know, in the hood, when somebody was trying to act tough, and that's not really how they are, we would say, oh, you ain't, you ain't, you ain't built like that. 
Somebody talking all big, like, yo, it's like, bro, you're not built like that. You're, you're 5'2", and you, you know, you don't, you ain't, oh, this is, what the, this is what we do in our pride. We start making all these demands to God. God's like, you're not built like that. And the proud occupy themselves, that is, they involve themselves in things beyond their finite comprehension, our finite comprehension. And that only brings unrest to the soul, as all pride always does. But the psalmist takes a different posture, a posture not of pride, but of humility. And notice that this is true and sincere humility. He's able to say this is his posture to the Lord. Look who the psalmist is addressing in verse 1. He's talking to the Lord. Oh, the things he says might be things that hypocrites say is true of them before others. But only the truly humble can say that these things are true of them before the Lord. Oh, saint, can you say this is true of you before the Lord? And you say with David, oh, Lord, I humble myself. I don't have it figured out. I can't see that far. And I refuse to occupy myself with things as if I could. Listen to a definition of humility. Having or showing a modest or low estimate of one's own importance. Nobody's saying that. Nobody but the kingdom folks. This is the way of the Lord Jesus. He's with his disciples and they're arguing. What are they arguing about? Who's the greatest? How? We do the same though. But humility, having a modest or low estimate of one's own importance. To abase ourselves or to make ourselves low. Not lower than we really are. We just got to bend down to where we actually are. Because we usually like to walk a little taller than we really are. The distinctly Christian application of this is that we do this in contrast not to another person. We do this in contrast to God. We don't measure ourselves off each other. We measure ourselves to God. And saints, when you measure yourself to God, nobody stands tall. We just sang about this. Oh, Lord, if you count iniquities, who's standing? In contrast of the Lord, we are a very little significance, very low estimate, and we shouldn't be surprised that this was David's exercise. You remember Psalm 8? which he too wrote, when I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? I'm rocked you, you, you even care about us. I'm amazed you care about us. We should think about the cross like, how does he care about us so much? What is man? Angels got no savior. Devil, no savior. 
We got the son of God dying for us to give us life. Not because we're dope. God wasn't chilling in his glory for eternity past. Watch this fall into sin and be like, man, I would really be something if I had them. No, 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 no. It's supposed to, it should humble us. How is it that you care? I love that impossible song to sing. And can it be? All them little, all them the vocal steps. Like, amazing love though it says. How can it be that my God would die for me? Oh, David had been soaking in that. He'd been writing songs about that. So he got into a perplexing situation. He's like, oh, I know. I know I, this is above my pay grade. David understood God is great. We are not. He is perfectly wise. We are not. He is God. We are not. You, we can keep doing it, right? right? When you start with God, you shrink down to an appropriately small, insignificant size. And that's where we live. We, this is us. And what's amazing is that though this is us, we get him. This is how the psalmist does it. He says, oh, Lord. And you might notice in your English Bible that Lord is all capitals. That lets us know that in the original language, this is the personal name of God. This is Yahweh. Oh, Yahweh, he says in verse 1. He looks to the Lord Yahweh. He looks to his covenant-keeping God, the God who keeps his promises, the God who delivers, the God who rescues, the Lord who has been their dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth or ever he had formed the earth or the world, from everlasting to everlasting, he is God. He's the mighty one, the Lord, who speaks and summons the earth from the rising of its sun to its setting. He, from the very perfection of beauty, the Bible says, shines forth. He is the Lord who is gracious and merciful, who is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He is the Lord who is good to all and whose mercy is over all that he has made, whose kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, whose dominion endures throughout all generations. Our God is in the heavens. He does all that pleases him, and all that pleases him is perfect. Oh, may we all humble ourselves before the Lord God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He is the God who watches over all the affairs of men. He is the God who governs the direction of history and the trajectory of each and every nation. He is the God who sits in the heavens, who confounds all his enemies, who cares for all his people, who controls all the elements. He upholds the entire universe, we're told, by the words of his power. He is in intricately involved in overseeing all the minute details in each of our lives. He commands his army of angels. He sustains each of his saints. He listens to every one of our prayers. He answers all of his people when they call him. He himself carries 
all the burdens of his children, strengthens our hearts in Christ, raises people from the graves of their sin, works salvation for a countless many, calls men and women to judgment through death, guards all his saints by his own power, sustains our faith to never fall. He disciplines in love all his children, provides for each and every one of the needs of all his sheep and he's receiving all the saints who have died and there's that sleep of death he receives them all to be with him awaiting that promised resurrection of their bodies which he will perform by his power all the while never losing leaving or forsaking a single sheep Lord. You're talking about the same one, right? You can be trusted with your troubles. He's the Lord God. You're saying, what about you? When we think of the manifold and incalculable works of God. Are you humbled before him? Without a high and exalted view of God, you will have an overly exalted view of yourself. This is where the psalmist starts then, posturing himself low in humility. Oh, Lord, my, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great. And too marvelous for me. Another commentator has it as this. He says, the great and wonderful things here meant are God's secret purposes and sovereign means for their accomplishment. In which man is not called to cooperate, but to acquiesce. You're not familiar with acquiesce? You don't use that in your common vocabulary? Son, clean your room? Yes, I acquiesce. Uh, acquiesce means to accept without protest. The great things and wonderful things then meant are God's secret purposes, his sovereign means for their accomplishment in which man is not called to cooperate but to accept without protest. The many things that God does that are beyond our comprehension are not communicated to us so that we might argue with God about it. It's not why you have a Bible. He did not give you a Bible that you can then somehow disprove him with. It doesn't work that way. We have the Bible, we're told in Romans 15, so that we'd have hope. So by the encouragement of the scriptures, we'd have hope. And what we find in this book is we have an abundant amount of reasons to have hope. He doesn't give us this book for us to argue with him, so, but so in faith, we might accept what he says without protest and rest in what he says with joy. That's what faith does. It rests in the word of the Lord. It says, despite what I feel, I believe what he said. 
In short, right, the profound and mysterious working of the will of God, we are not expected to fully understand. In fact, it is impossible for us to fully understand, and yet we are expected to fully accept it and trust in it. We are expected to fully accept and to trust in what he says. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. By not doing so, right, this is what got Job and his friends in trouble. This is what they refused to do. And by not doing it, all they added to themselves was sorrow, sorrow and sin. You read the book of Job, you will find that they spent 29 chapters pontificating about matters above their pay grade. And when Elihu shows up, his, he doesn't answer no, none of the questions. He answers none of the questions. Elihu's whole sermon is, this is above your pay grade. Were you there when he? That would have been the title of Elihu's sermon. He's like, I'm here to address you this morning. <laughs> Were you there when he? <laughs> they spent 29 chapters trying to f- figure stuff out. And if you read through Job, if you don't understand that's the context of Job, you get confused about, okay, are they saying something true or something wrong right here? And the problem is it's a blend. And a blend is wrong. Right? He is light in him. is no darkness at all. There ain't no blend. It's, he's, he, his word is true. His way is true. He didn't have Job suffer so Job could figure stuff out. Job was supposed to trust him. The the, the 29 chapters of vanity. Again, if if Job and his friends would have been humble, they would have done what the psalmist does here. Those 29 chapters of vanity and fallen conjecture would have been replaced by three short verses. Job could have been three chapters. He's righteous, the devil comes to test him, test him, does all that his friends show up, and instead of them being like, yo, what's going on, fam? They just said, oh, oh, let's not, let's not spend our time on stuff that's way above our pay grade. Brother, trust in the Lord. We're going to trust in the Lord with you. Next book. But in pride, right, they sin. They they sin by refusing to humble themselves. At the end of chapter 1 in Job, at the end of chapter 2 in Job, as he's trusting the Lord, we see this little phrase about him. It says, in all this, Job did not sin. That stops happening in chapter 2. It shows up in 122. It shows up again in 210. But once the friends show up and they start talking, they start making connections, cross-references and stuff, taking stuff out of context, which we're all inclined to do. That phrase goes away. His friends show up, and together they all fellowship in fallenness. They begin to occupy themselves with things too great and too marvelous for them, and they sin. Job and all his friends get rebuked except for the preacher Elihu who says, were you there when God? Everybody gets named by God with a rebuke at the end of the book, but Elihu, right? Elihu is one that the Lord uses to humble them all, but Job is eventually humbled. And do you remember what he says at the end of the book? What took him them 29 chapters to learn? 
Job 42, he says this. It says, Job answered the Lord. I know that you can do all things. And you just see Job and his friends was here, and you just hear Job like he starts to shrink down to size, right? I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? I believe he's referring to himself. He says, therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Only Job, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar gave Job that sentiment. Listen, I don't know it all, brother. You don't know it all, brother. Let's trust the God who does. Listen, saint, there is a lot we don't know, but there is nothing he doesn't. There's a lot you don't know. There's a lot you can't figure out. There's a lot I can't see how it all relates and how we're, but there is nothing in God's universe that he is perplexed about. He put it there, and he put it there for a good reason. And the way we know that is not because we figure it out, it's because we know he's a good God. Just consider how much we'd all be helped to daily remember how much we don't know and we cannot control. We would complain way less. Way, 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 way less. We wouldn't complain at all. Look, failing to do this empties us of peace. It doesn't change anything about God's plan. It changed everything about our experience of peace. Failing to do this got Job into trouble. It got Job's friends into trouble. This gets us into trouble. This got the disciples into trouble. This is what got Peter rebuked by the Lord Jesus. This is what got Peter called Satan. Jesus was going to the cross, and he told him he was going to the cross. Listen, this is the plan. I came to save. And for me to save, I got to die. But when I die, I'm going to be raised. And Peter didn't say, this is a marvelous thing. This is the Lord's doing. It's marvelous in our eyes. He didn't say, he said, no, Lord, you're talking crazy. <laughs> Messiahs don't come to die. Kings don't come to die. We, and Jesus turns and says, get behind me, Satan. You're thinking like a man. You got your mindset on the things of man and not the things of God. Oh, Peter didn't know the cross was the only way for rescue. He didn't know how God would work redemption, deliverance, salvation, how Christ would conquer sin, death, and the devil, how Christ would uh, take us all from our bondage and slavery to sin and, and deliver us all from the fear of death. He wasn't thinking all that. He didn't know what God's plans were, even when Jesus told him. And that's pride. He was rebuked not for making the right connections. That's a, he was rebuked for his pride. Humility is a prerequisite of peace. No humility, you will have no peace. It's the only way to contentment in Christ. Paul says, rejoice in the Lord. Again, I say rejoice. The Lord's at hand. Listen, don't be anxious which assumes there's stuff that will tempt you to be anxious. He's not pretending life is easy. He's not pretending life's not hard. He knows it is, 
But he still said, don't be anxious about anything but pray. Call out, say, oh, Lord. And when he says pray, I think he means pray something like this. Oh, Lord, Lord. With thanksgiving, requests, supplications, thanksgiving. You, you, you know you, you freaking out when you don't have the thanksgiving part. Give me out, give me out, give me out. But it's not like, Psh, but you're with me regardless. I thank you that you're my shepherd and I shall not want. And you make me lie down in green pastures. You lead me beside still waters. You lead me in paths of righteousness for your name's sake. You restore souls. And even if you got me walking through this valley of the shadow of death, I ain't got to be afraid because you will stay with me. Not only are you going to stay with me, you're going to bless me. Even if I'm surrounded by enemies, you still make a table for my sustenance. And I never leave the path in which goodness and mercy are not bound to me until I arrive at home forever. My cup is full, so full it's overflowing. I am a sheep in the flock of the Lord. Oh, saints, this this is true for every saint. The most content saints will be the most humble ones. This is not rocket science, family. Our pride always causes our greatest disturbances. The most humble ones will be the most content. Those who say and rest in, I don't know all, but I trust him who does, they will have peace that surpasses understanding. Yo, do you know what's happening? I don't, but he does. People might even try to rile you up to get fretful and get frustrated you don't join them. Listen, let's talk about something we know. Let's talk about the cross, where we're convinced that he loves us. That he has not spared his own son. He has graciously given him up for us all. He's going to with him give us all things. It's interesting that the first act the psalmist has is to say what he doesn't do and admit what he doesn't know. I've been in many arguments that I have made longer by not doing this. I've caused a lot of turmoil to my own soul by not doing this. We would all be helped to remember this important step, to not ignore this important point of reflection, admitting what you can't do and what you don't know. Oh, and the Lord Jesus Christ is the most perfect righteous man. Amen? He's the one who lived the righteous way most fully. No one ever humbled himself more than the Lord Jesus. No one ever went lower than the Lord Jesus. We're told that though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant and obeyed, obeyed all the way to death. You know what that is? That's some trust. There's some trust that's like, I'm going to obey you even if I die because I know you're going to raise me back trust. So perfectly trusted his father's will that he didn't even say anything or do anything that his father did not first say or do. He says in John 12, I have not spoken of my own authority. Jesus says my whole life has been retweets. I'm just reposting what God gave me. 
The father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say, what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the father told me. Oh, his trust was his glory. His trust was his, I know, I need more than this. I need like a towel or something. (laughs) Thank you, brother. His trust was his glory. It's his glory. It was his glory. That's your glory. Your glory is to trust the Lord. We're those who trust the Lord. Not because we see what he's doing, but because we know who he is. Even the day of his return, that day, it's like the next biggest day in the Bible. It's the next biggest day in the Bible. There was the cross, burial, resurrection. Next big day that the Bible is that day. You know who doesn't know when he's being sent, at least when he was here? The Lord Jesus. And there he happily and contentedly rested in its concealment. Concerning that day or hour, no one knows, not the angels of heaven, nor the Son of Man, but the Father only. And I just imagine he was smiling when he said it. I ain't got to know when I'm coming back. He'll send me when it's time. Christ, though, again, in the form of God, emptied himself. The form of a servant. He did this for our salvation, family. He did this for our honor, and he did this for an example for us. Humble yourselves before the Lord. Bring us to our second point. Don't worry, it's shorter. Y'all was like, you said an hour and a half, right? (laughs) Point number two. Point number one is humble yourself. Point number two is resolve to trust him. Resolve to trust him. And we do this in two ways, both as an individual and with others. We do this among his people. We do this before his people, inviting his people to do it too. Resolve to trust him, both as an individual and with others. Uh, Look at verse 2. He says, but I have, this is what I don't do. Listen what he does do. I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. You hear that personal resolve? His personal commitment. Let me tell you what I do. I've calmed and quieted my soul. You can do that by God's help. This is what it looks like to be filled with the Holy Spirit. In Romans 15, 13, he says, May the God of hope fill you with joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you might abound in hope. That happenstance, you don't just slip up and go, oh, I'm trusting the Lord. It's done by faith. The righteous live by faith. It's an active effort of worship here. The King James says it this way, I have behaved and quieted myself as a child that is weaned. The NASB, that's the New American Standard Bible, says this, I have certainly soothed and quieted my soul like a weaned child resting against his mother. To be a a weaned child means that a child was no longer being breastfed, or more accurately, that they were of full age, right? They were ripened, which is what the word suggests. So when we think weaned, we probably just think of bottles, right? We think in the context of food. But here, it's, it's, it's actually a little bit larger, the category that's being brought up. It's more of a reference to a stage in a child's life related to their own self-control. 
And I think the picture is clear. Parenting a newborn is exhausting. All the parents said, amen. Parenting a newborn is about, and it's in large part because of how restless newborns are. They don't know how to be calm. The first few years of your life is teaching babies how to be calm, how to quiet themselves. When they want, they scream. When they're bothered, they scream. When they don't like something, they scream. That's the season of life for them, right? And it's largely spent them screaming and us seeking to soothe them. We do all types of crazy stuff. Some parents got to take their kids in cars and drive around the block at night to make them go to sleep. Praying for you, if that's you. Uh, well, we be, we, 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 like, you be talking to somebody, you, you try to rock, you try to sway, you, you do all kinds, you change your voice. Uh, and you're, but what you're trying to teach them is you're seeking to train them off of needing immediate and constant soothing. That's what you're doing. You're trying to teach them to soothe themselves. They learn to quiet themselves. They, know when, they learn how to stay calm even when they're hungry. To keep quiet even when displeased. The Bible would say that that's a weaned child. And the psalmist here says, I'm like that with the Lord. I'm like a weaned child with its mother, and I've calmed and quieted myself with the Lord. There's something that's going to tell me to scream, but I've calmed and quieted myself with the Lord. As I hope in the Lord, as I trust in the Lord, as I look to the Lord, I do so calm and quiet in total trust of him. Have you ever seen a child peacefully at rest with their parent? It's a beautiful sight. And then contrast that with a child who's kicking and screaming and throwing a fit. A not beautiful sight. <laughs> One is marked by tranquility. The other's marked by a tantrum. One's calm and quiet. The other's restless and disturbed. Think, what kind of child of God are you? Are you marked by calm trust in the Lord or by restless worry and distrust do you know the peace of God that surpasses understanding? Have you learned to, like the Lord Jesus, sleep on a boat even when waves rock it? Maybe a more important question is you asking that to whoever knows you best here. I dare you. Say, hey, you've known me for a few years. Do do I tend to throw tantrums when the Lord sends me trials? Do I have been marked by trust? Again, are you a Christian who's marked by calm trust in the Lord as you go through hard stuff, or are we marked by tantrum? Are you quick to vocalize complaint against the Lord, or is your soul marked by resting content in Him? Are you able to come, and whatever we're singing that's true of the Lord, there's no hindrance in the heart. I don't need a playlist just to make sure I actually believe this. Like, if it's true about God, I can sing it. God's how my week went. Happy to come among God's people and say he is faithful. Again, the Lord Jesus, he demonstrated this in the garden. 
Then going through the cross, Matthew 26, 38 through 39, then he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. He says, come, remain here and watch with me. Again, Jesus invited his friends not to help him figure stuff out, but to pray. And going a little further, he falls on his face and he prayed, saying, my father, O Lord, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will. You know what that was? That was the Lord Jesus in a heightened moment of agony, and he wasn't just eyeing the physical pain he was to experience, but the wrath of God he would be submerged under. But this is the Lord Jesus in the greatest trial of his human life, and he is calming and quieting his sorrowful soul before his father whom he trusted. They're asking Jesus questions. He's not like, yo, get me out of here. Like, no, quiet, literally. He trusted his father's plan. He was strengthened to the finish. He was eyeing his father's promise. There was joy set before him. It was what was coming after the cross that was fueling his enduring of the cross. And he knew that his father's will was good, acceptable, and perfect. Oh, saints, we got to carry our cup like our Christ. Listen, is there a confusing providence in your life? You're not supposed to figure it out. That's not why it's there. It's there for you to trust him with it. God doesn't command us to connect all the dots. That's his job. He commands us to trust him through it. We got a friend, Pastor uh, Bobby Scott. I call him Bible Bobby uh, because he lives and breathes the Bible. He's a pastor in California um, and he was sharing uh, with us one time just about his sufferings he's experienced just as a Christian, his own personal trials as a believer. He had a child with cancer. His house burned down. The ministerial war and tug of war that he was often in, and his reflection is it, in it all, he's like, listen, all of his lots and in all of ours, he said, look, and that's how he talked, look, he's teaching you to trust him. He's teaching you to trust him. Oh, let that be a reflex when you're talking to your brothers and sisters. And Listen, he's teaching you to trust him. It's there for you to trust him. Ask, please ask. Can you get this out? As long as when you ask, you say, but my big concern is not being out. It's, it's doing your will. Peter got sidetracked paying attention to other people's problems, right? Even after Jesus resurrected. I love Peter because he's so much, I'm so much like him. <laughs> Not the apostle stuff, amen. But <laughs> Peter got sidetracked paying attention to other people's problems, right? Trying to look at other people's cups. How come I got this cup? Why they cup got gems in it? What they drinking in their cup? They cup not even, my, my cup's super full. Your cup's smaller. They got bigger cup than you, but it just looks bigger. You just, you know, we, we're comparing cups. Jesus resurrected. He's telling Peter, yo, you love me? Do what I said. Right? You don't get to pick how love looks. I tell you how love looks. Feed my sheep. He's like, cool, cool. They're walking. They, sees the apostle John, and Peter saw him. He says to Jesus, yo, Lord, what about him? What's up with his cup? 
I heard he going to be here till you come back. Is that true? Jesus says, what's that got to do with you? If it's my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. What's that to you, Peter? You got to trust me. Listen, we don't get to pick our cups, but we're called to hold the cups he gives us and trust he gave us the perfect one. That is what it looks like and that's what it sounds like to trust God, not my will, but yours. Not my will, but yours. And know that just as Christ was exalted after humbling himself at the proper time, so too shall we. It's promise and he keeps his promises. Humble yourself, Peter says, so at the proper time, he'll exalt you. He says, 1 Peter 5, 10, listen, and after you suffer a little while, it's, it's just a little while. Feels like a long while, but it's just a little while compared to forever. And after you suffered a little while, God himself, the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Keep trusting him. Resolve to trust him individually. But listen. We don't just labor that way for ourselves. We do that with others. Look how the psalm ends. Oh, Israel, come on, y'all. That's what he's hoping the Lord. Now and forever. You know what we're going to do next Sunday? Everybody going to gather up and we're going to say, yo, trust in the Lord. Hope in the Lord. Look, we resolve to trust him individually and as a collective. It's what a church is. We're the trust the Lord people on the earth. We encourage the whole congregation with it. We do this both with our encouragement and with our example, both what we say and what we do. That's what David's doing here. Look, this is a song the saints are singing as they gather to worship, and they're all singing it all over the place, all different lives, all different years, they're in all different, and they're coming together singing the same song because they're trusting in the same Lord. Trusting the Lord is what we do. Knowing everything is what he does. We trust the Lord. It's what we do. He runs stuff. We trust him. And the Lord Jesus does this too. Hebrews chapter 10, 2, verse 10 through 13, it says, It was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, many sons and daughters, many of God's people to glory, he should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. His path to glory, suffering. Your path to glory, suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have the same source. You say, I don't want to do this cup. He says, you can't have a share with me. My people walk with their cup. He says, that is why he's not ashamed to call us brothers. We tread the same path he walked. And it goes on saying, this is the Lord Jesus saying this, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, the text says, I will put my trust in him. And behold, I and the children God has given me. The Lord Jesus living this. Not only is he on the way to glory with us, but he says, as I go, I'm among the congregation. 
praising your name, O Lord, trusting in you like all of your children. It's what we do. We, we by ourselves trust, so then we get together and say, praise the Lord. You know who he is. He's God the Lord who's faithful and steadfast in love. Jesus did this to him, like himself, and he invites us to join him in trusting the Lord. This is how salvation happened. Salvation is us responding to Christ's call to trust the Lord. Our sin, most basically, is a refusal to trust the Lord. He says do, we say no. He says don't, we say we will. It's a refusal to trust the Lord. And this is sin. It makes us enemies of God. It brings us to death and destruction. But God comes and sends his son to save us. And he saves us by dying for us on the cross, being buried in that tomb, being raised on the third day, and ascending to the right hand of his Father on high. And then he says, and tell the world, if anybody trusts in me, they will be saved. I take everybody who trusts in me. Don't matter how big your sins is, doesn't matter how much shame you feel, doesn't matter how sloppy your walk was, any who trust in me, I take. Any who, who, who feel that weight of their sin, they feel that exhaustion of their sin, but they hear the voice of Christ saying, come and I'll give you rest. And salvation is the saints walking to Jesus and, and resting in him. He says, take my yoke upon you. Learn from me. My yoke is easy. My burdens light. And I will give you rest for your souls. And that's what the saint, God gave us ears to hear. There's rest with him. If we trust in him. And we didn't get to see the cross. Passion of the Christ was not an accurate representation. Neither is the chosen or the new joint. You know, praise God if you're edified. I'm just saying. The way we know that the gospel, what the gospel is, and that the gospel works, is because God said it. And that's all we got. But that's enough. That's what the community of faith is. Those who believe the word of the Lord. He says, how will they believe in whom they never heard? How will they hear unless somebody tell them? And faith comes through hearing and hearing the word of the Lord. Amen. Oh, saying that ain't just how you get in the kingdom. That's what we do in the kingdom. Right. Those who trust his word. Yeah. Trust him. Trust him, saints. Trust him. Trust him with your trials. Count him pure joy. You know that it's producing something for you. He said so. Trust him with your suffering. Don't lose heart in it. Consider that this present suffering is not worth comparing that the glory that's to be revealed. It's okay if you can't see it. He said it. Trust him with your everything. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Not because they see how it connects, but because they believe what he said. Now, we who believe that Christ died for our sins 
was raised for our justification. We believe that God keeps his every word, fulfills his every promise. Let the church, who Paul calls the Israel of God, let them say with the psalmist here, O Israel, the true Israel of God, hope in the Lord now and forevermore. Amen? Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Oh, dear Lord, you've been so good to us in Christ. Oh, Lord, if there's any here that haven't trusted you, would you change that now? Give them life. Help them to know how true your word is, how sure your word is, how life-giving your word is. Help them to believe the same thing Jesus believed about your word, that your commandment is eternal life, and that you command everyone to come live in Jesus. Help us as your people, Lord. Oh, help us not to be marked by tantrums, but by peace. Help us not to come with excuses, but to trust you. Help us to not live outside of our pay grade, but help us to be humble and trust your every word. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.